So um, the basis of today's message is kind of going along the same line of thought uh, that John was talking about there uh, during worship, um, which is it, the Bible says, Jesus says, in this world, this present world, you will have tribulation. And there are so many ways, so many different angles, so many different means by which the enemy can come in and do his best to wreck a good thing. There's so many ways that he can make it so difficult from time to time for us not only to be uh, stalwart and steady in all of our beliefs as Christians, uh, but to be active in our faith and to not waver, to not move backwards, to not go the wrong direction. I feel pretty good, which means are y'all are probably cold, huh? No? Everybody's good? Everybody's solid? Okay, excellent. Wow. Um, and there are so many different ways and means of, of different people and different ministries even and, and, uh, and different methods of explanation to try to, to try to keep us strong or to try to keep us in the loop or try to give us reasons to remember and reasons to believe and reasons to stay strong. And as John said, sometimes if we're being honest, it can be a little bit difficult. Sometimes it's kind of hard because life will get to you. Sometimes you're praying for something and it doesn't turn out the way that you want. And that's okay. Uh, but then when it happens again, it's like, eh, that's okay too. But then when it happens again and again and again, you start to wonder. Is it something you're doing wrong? Is it something your leadership is doing wrong? Is it something wrong with how you've been taught about God? What, what's, what's going on? Why, why aren't things working out? It's very reminiscent of a question that we studied either last week or the week before where a man was sitting on the side of the road, blind, heard Jesus walking by, and wanted to receive healing, his disciples asked him, why why is it that this man is blind? Is it something that he did? Is it something that his parents did? Or what's the deal? What's going on here? And Jesus said, "It's it's not because of him, it's not because of his parents, it's not because of sin, it's so that the works of God can be manifest in him. It's to glorify God. So a lot of times in our own lives when we're asking that question, is it something that's wrong with me? Is it something that's wrong with somebody else? Is it something that's wrong with God? The resounding answer coming from the scriptures and coming from the mouth of your Savior. The way that the song says it, that Eli sang, the words written in red, say it's not anybody's fault. It's that the works of God can be manifest. If that doesn't make sense, it's along the lines of we all love to see God heal somebody. And sometimes we forget God could never heal anybody if nobody ever got sick. Ephesians chapter one, verse number 17. Where we're going to be focusing most of our our energy this morning. I want to compare that the way that God teaches us to the way that we're taught. Uh, as young people, and of course I can't speak for every every nation, I've only lived in America and I've only been um, exposed, if you will, to the Americanized public school system. But if you think about it, it's very interesting that when you walk into school, everything's based on, and you're taught from the time you're a young person, that if you want to be successful in life, being successful in life means making good money at the end of the day, Right? Having a good job, 
where you can end up having a good paycheck, and a good paycheck equals success, and success equals happiness. So therefore, you need to get the good job. How do you get the good job? Education equals good job. Education equals diploma equals good job. Good job equals more money. More money equals success. Success equals happiness. It's the formula for the American dream. There's a, there's just a one, there's actually many, but one glaringly obvious, I think, kind of problem with that model of an American dream. And the problem is that it is an elitist model. It leaves so many people behind. Because what we don't say, but what we mean is that in order to walk away with those A's and B's, in order to walk away with that good education, you have to be somebody of a certain level IQ. I mean, it's just the truth. At the end of the day, not every single person has the ability to walk into a school system and walk out of it with good grades, despite how much they want it, despite how much they try, despite the goodness of their heart. There's just not everybody's brain doesn't work on the same level. And especially when you look at the model of how we're taught, we're not taught how to think. We're given the information and we're taught to memorize it. We're, we're given our thoughts are given to us. We're supposed to memorize those thoughts and regurgitate those thoughts. And the, the more of those thoughts that we can memorize and write down on paper, the better that our grade will be and the better that our grade is the higher place that we hold, the higher place that we hold, the better degree that we get, the better degree that we get, once again, the better job, the more money, the success, and the happiness. Uh, but there is, uh, there's, a, there's a question there. There's a, what, what, about, what about those who, despite all of their best efforts, are never going to make those grades? We all want our kids to be in the top 10% of their class. We're all taught that that's where we need to be. If you can be in the top 5%, that would be awesome. What nobody ever talks about is, in order for you to be in the top 10%, there has to be a 90% sacrifice. You can't be in the 10% unless 90% of those kids are worse than you. So that's what you're hoping for at the end of the day. 90% need to fail so I can go to a good college. And then I will have... The degree, I will have the better job, I will have the success, and I will have the happiness. What happens to the other 90%? I'm hoping I make enough money um, to give them all a couple of bucks when I make my U-turn under the overpass. Oh, you must be the 90%. That 10% thing was true, man. It smells good on this side. American dream. It's something that, unfortunately and necessarily is going to be replicated because that's what we know and that's where we come from in any type of institution. And of course, the institution that we are worried about or the institution that we are focused on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights is the institution of the church of the body of Christ. And there is a daunting, um, just lost the word I was looking for, pattern, if you will, of replication that I see and that many people see making its way through the church, making its way through the body of Christ. There's even a a theological word for it called Gnosticism. And it's a word that stretches way back into ancient times and it's been around for 
quite a long time, there were always a group of people who were referred to as the Gnostics. The Gnostics are the ones who were who had the reputation of being the thinkers, the higher level thinkers, the explainers, even if you will, the teachers, which is not always a bad thing. But I want to, I want you to see where this goes in Christianity. In school, we are taught that the Bible, Genesis chapter one, is fairy tales, full of fairy tales, because it doesn't really explain anything. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, that's a good nighttime bed story or whatnot. It's nice to think that there's a big man that lives up in the sky somewhere who is invisible. They can just say, let there be light, and then there's light, because if he can do that, he can also say, let there be money. He can also say, let there be healing. He can also say, let this person you know, live forever. He can also say, let this happen and let that happen. And all of a sudden, it can just magically happen. So God becomes our magical fairy godmother, who we're happy to believe that some of the things in the Bible uh, might be true in God's world. But in the real world, we know that nothing is just like, God. It, let there be light and there was light doesn't make any sense. So we have to study and we have to go down and we have to find through a scientific explanation down to the, to the depth of our own knowledge and try to explain how things work. And we do it with a Gnostic model. In other words, it all comes from the depth of our own understanding. So in science, uh, or in school, we are taught from a scientific perspective. When we actually break it all down at its most base form, everything shares uh, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the, same, the same type of elements, the same type of cells, the same type of atoms are present. And because that's all present, we, we can begin to write laws about something that we call physics, astrophysics, quantum mechanics, all these different things, and, and these laws actually govern the creation of the universe. And what we can find through knowledge and through study is that there is a deeper, albeit still very difficult, explanation to understand about how all of these things came to pass. And what it comes down to is that there was a common ancestor who was a primate that we somehow evolved from, and it's not that... Now, here's the thing. The Bible could have said in Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning God created monkeys and monkeys became men. And the same people would have said, that's a fairy tale. That doesn't make any sense because it doesn't explain anything very well. I want you to stick with me. We're going somewhere important this morning. And they would have found a different explanation, something that sounded highly intelligent, something that took a little bit more study, something that took a little bit more experimentation, something that evolved into its own language, something that only the very elite, intelligent, top-of-their-class people could really understand and the rest of us to try to make it onto that platform could hopefully memorize some of those very difficult words and regurgitate them, knowing really nothing about what they mean, so that we can be looked upon as smart, knowledgeable individuals as well, and then we all become part of the group. Maybe, if I'm being honest, what we're doing is, regardless of how much we really understand, we are, that's why they call it the rat race, we are all shuffling uh, a, a huge mass of people all reaching for the, the same pie, hoping to get a little piece. Like, I'm not Charles Darwin, I'm not Richard Dawkins, I'll never understand it the way that they understand it, but I can use some of the words they use, I can repeat some of the models that they made, I can hopefully make a high enough grade to sneak my way into that room and grab a piece of that pie as if I know what I'm doing. I don't really know what I'm doing, I'm willing to accept that they know what they're doing, and I'm willing to call myself after them. In other words, I'm a Darwinian evolutionist, I'm a biological, whatever, whatever it takes in order to reach in there and grab a piece of that pie because mommy and daddy told me that pie is the American dream and if I can get a piece of that pie, I will be happy and I will be successful. 
This is unfortunately not a sermon. I say unfortunately because I, I enjoy it, although a lot of people don't enjoy it. It's not a sermon about comparing scientific methods and scientific explanations to biblical explanations. We can do that sometime. For those of you that are new, I've got to make the point that this is an illustration. I'm not saying that I actually am a Darwinian evolutionist or biological. I don't believe in all that. We have, we have vast uh, amounts of information and explanation um, to combat that for another time and place. My point is, whether you believe in all that or whether you do not, that model has replicated itself inside the body of Christ. Where the Bible says, Paul writes, I want to break this down, this dichotomy down for you. Paul writes two things that seem to be at odds with each other. He says that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He also says that he has been given all knowledge and all wisdom to understand all mysteries. He writes a testimony of himself as being found outside of his own body and carried away to the third heaven and shown things that it is not lawful for a man to utter. So not only does Paul say that he understands the entire counsel of God, the the word of God, and has been given knowledge of all mysteries, but he also says he's been given knowledge of things that we we haven't even thought to think about and and that aren't even mysterious to us because we don't even know they exist. And it's not lawful for him to write down. Then he writes that when it comes in concerning the body of Christ, that there are not many wise that are chosen. There are not many noble There are not many strong, but God uses, what does God use? He uses the weak things, the the elderly, one of the Bible words that's hard to say. In other words, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's God's MO. So Paul, on one hand, is saying, in a way, he's in this elite class. In another sentence, he's saying, God doesn't like using the elite class. God, God likes to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So how does Paul reconcile these two thoughts? Well, when Paul shows up as the evangelist, when the local church calls up Paul and says, hey, we have a slot open on Sunday, would you come speak to us? When Paul walks in the door, and by all accounts, uh, Paul was kind of a short, bald-headed, beady-eyed guy uh, who definitely wouldn't turn any heads when he walked in the door. I don't know how they get such a distinct um, explanation of what he looked like, but they even say that he could have, was slightly hunchback and maybe walked a little funny. That I could believe because the guy walked like the entire earth 17 times, so he, he probably had a little limp. Not to mention shipwrecked, beaten, bruised, stoned, died, came back, imprisoned, stripped, beaten, everything else. So Paul walks in and he's nothing... Nothing great to look at. But everybody knows this is an anointed man of God. An anointed man of God who has all knowledge, who knows all mysteries. Let me just put it to you like this. If you didn't already know, I'm sure most most everybody probably already knows. But when you're reading your Bible, your New Testament Bible, two thirds of it was penned by Paul. He didn't write any of the Gospels and he didn't write the book of Acts. But between the book of Acts and the book of Revelation, he wrote almost all of that. Peter had a couple of books in there. John had a couple of books. Jude had a book. Paul wrote the rest. So you know he understands a lot because he wrote it. But then he says, when I walk up to a pulpit, when I walk into a church and where people are looking at me as Paul the evangelist, 
Paul, the greatest apostle that ever lived, Paul, with all knowledge and understood all mysteries, he said, I, as Paul, I never walk up to a pulpit and decide that I'm going to try to sway a crowd with the swelling words of a man that understand the mysteries of God. But instead, I want to come to them with humbleness and meekness, hoping that God can use me to show a demonstration of the power of the cross. That's what Paul said. In our Gnostic model, we are taught many times, oftentimes, you have to understand what it means to be a three-point Calvinist teaching the tulip method of salvation or a new reformed Baptist or a southern Methodist. There's, there's so many, like, I've made a point not to get into them, so I can't even remember all of them. But there are so many different theologies. There are so many different teachings. There are so many multisyllabic and hard to understand and ascertain principles. Different types of grace, different types of dispensations, different types of salvation, different types of redemption. There's a new word for everything under the sun. 90% of those words are not found in the Bible, but they are propagated to the body of Christ that if you don't understand these words, you don't buy into these words, you don't buy into these theologies, then you don't know God. And if you don't know God, there's a good chance that you are not saved because you have to know God to be saved. Now, nobody would ever walk right up to you and say, if you don't understand the application of special grace, then you are not going to heaven. But through their words and teachings, that's underneath it all. That's the truth that they're not going to speak verbatim black and white. If God wanted to reveal himself to us through knowledge, then where would that leave those of his creation who are of a lower IQ? Where would it leave those of his creation that even pass from this life before anybody gets to even see what their IQ is at a young age? They couldn't possibly understand some of the things in the word of God. What I want to bring to you this morning is a thought. If you open up the word of God, I want you to understand you always need to live your life understanding that God is not a God that intends to explain himself. He is a God that intends to reveal himself. And that is a completely different standard. That is a completely different foundation than the one that you find in the educational system and the one that you find oftentimes, unfortunately, in the church system. There are so many amazing things in the Word of God that are great to gain an understanding of. Let me, let me put it to you, like, let me tell you a story. This, this helps me, maybe it'll help you. When I was... Coming up through the ranks, if you will, inside the church, and I always felt like what God was calling me to be was a pastor, but I wasn't sure if I was, I was going to get there. I was coming up through um, assistant youth pastoring to college pastoring to uh, lead youth pastoring to assistant pastoring. Through all of that, there was a time in my life, probably at least the first three or four years of, of knowing God and giving my life over to him, that I, I felt like I had a, a, a really great grasp on his word. I felt like I had a really good base of knowledge. I was pretty decent with the Hebrew. I was pretty decent with the Greek. 
I was able to work in hermeneutics and bringing some of the Old and New Testament together and reconciling the, the different covenants and the different testaments and finding some of the deeper, what I thought was deeper uh, information in the Word of God. And I really felt like I had a good grip. I'd also studied pretty decently Mormonism. I'd also studied pretty decently Jehovah's Witness. I'd also studied to a pretty decent degree um, uh, Islam. And I'd also studied to a pretty decent degree the math and the sciences so I could speak to atheists. I wanted to be able to to use knowledge to change people's minds. And it was so frustrating because I felt like I could never win a debate, no matter what. People would come to my door, it didn't matter if they were Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, no matter all the information I thought I had, they always, it's always felt like they won. How did they win the debate? Like I'm trying specifically to figure out a way to beat these people. I don't think they're really trying. How'd they do that? It doesn't matter. The atheists that I would speak to, with all the math and all the science, I, I felt like I just, it, they always won. I couldn't win a debate. It didn't affect what I believed, but it was very frustrating. Because I thought that with the Bible, with the Word of God, and with knowledge, I should be able to defeat them. Then about four years in, I really don't know what happened. Maybe I really did hit another level with the information. Maybe it was a spiritual thing. Maybe it was God just removing the hedge and going, okay, I'll let you win a few and then see what happens. I don't know what happened. But all of a sudden, I, could, I, I know where I was. I know where I was standing. I, I don't remember the date, but I remember exactly where I was and who I was talking to. And there, was, there were two Mormon guys that came into a nutrition store that I was working at. And we got into the little debate, and I clearly won. <laughs> clearly. I wiped the floor with them. And then I was like, that's right. Talk to the hand, Mormonism. You've been defeated. And then the next person that I had to talk to, the next debate that happened was with an atheist who was a scientifically minded person and uh, absolutely slaughtered them. Totally, I mean, not even a question who won that debate. The Jehovah's Witness, the next one that I talked to, no question. I started having people call me from church, from my church and other churches, like, hey, I've got this friend who's an atheist. Will you come over and talk to him and blah, 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 like I was getting a reputation. <laughs> I was like, man. Uh, yeah, a little street cred. I was like, man, this is, this is legit. This is what I'm talking about. All those years paid off. Turning off the TV for three years, there better be something. So it was really cool. It was really good. And I felt pretty good about myself. And then I realized one day I could count on one hand the number of people that I had a greater application or a greater amount of knowledge and information than they did. I could count on one hand the number of, of people who I had beaten in a debate that actually came any closer to God. And when I was going to count with that one hand, that one hand would look like this. I actually didn't need a hand. Not a single person that I could think of. Not a, not a single Mormon that I beat up with my information and made look silly, turned around and gave their life to Jesus. Not a single Jehovah's Witness that I beat in a debate came any closer to God. Not a single atheist who I outsmarted with their own sciences turned around and gave their life to the Lord. The math didn't do it. Nothing did it. What I realized is that whatever happened at about that four-year mark where I started winning all my debates uh, bore about as much fruit as those first four years where I couldn't win a debate. Zero. And I thought, man, what in the world is happening? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. That word revelation, everybody say spirit of revelation. Read that in verse 17 again, given to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That word revelation means laying bare. A disclosure of truth, instruction concerning things before unknown. Use of events by which things or states or person hitherto withdrawn from view are made visible to all. Manifestation, appearance, is the Greek word apocalypso, which is where we get the word apocalypse, which most people tie into the book that's named the book of Revelation. But that's not exactly what it means. What I realize after winning those debates and seeing nobody turn their life over to Jesus Christ is that I served a just God. A just God. He is just in that he didn't reserve salvation for the knowledgeable. He didn't reserve salvation for the intelligent. He didn't, he didn't reserve salvation for the great debater. He didn't reserve salvation for those that not only understood, but could recite his word in a more perfect manner, if you will. He reserved salvation for anybody who would give their life to him. He reserved salvation for the meek. He reserved salvation for the lowly. He reserved salvation for the lesser thans. He reserved salvation for every single person that was ever going to be born on the face of the earth. But those that have the humbleness of heart and the meekness of heart to turn around and want to serve a God who tells them that their salvation is going to be based on their understanding that they will never be good enough, that they are sinners that need grace, that they need to be saved, that they are not strong, but they are weak, that they are not intelligent, but that they do not understand, that they will never be able to get them there by themselves, but they will always need help. That takes a humble heart, that takes a meek heart, and that's why he said not many noble, not many strong, not many wise are called, because they are usually puffed up in their own glory. And in order to reach into a generation and pull a sinner out of the fire, it's going to take an act of love, not an act of genius. You can't explain somebody into salvation. We serve a God who doesn't want to explain himself. He wants to reveal himself. Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is the glory of God... Everybody say the glory of God to conceal a thing. But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. What that says there in Proverbs 25, 2. Is that God takes glory in being hidden. God takes glory in not being easily understood. God takes glory in being concealed. 
The word glory here in Proverbs 25 and the word honor are the same exact word. It's his glory to be concealed. It's our glory to search out a matter. It's our glory to seek it out. The glory of man to seek it out. I want to further that explanation with Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. It says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Here in the middle of verse 12 where it says two-edged, that's one word in the Greek. That one word is split into two separate words. A conjunction, if you will. The word two in the Greek, that's the first part of that word two-edged, is translated more often than not as two. So that's a good translation. The second word in the Greek translated edged is appears by itself in the scripture 79 times and 73 out of 79 times is translated as mouth. So in a deeper understanding, scratching right below the surface, it says for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two mouthed sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. Why the two-mouthed sword? What does that mean? It, it paints this picture for you. It's a certain type of sword in the Greek. It's a dagger that is sharp on both ends, slightly curved at the end. It was a, a weapon uh, that truly was a piercing weapon. It was a weapon that it can be kind of grotesque to, to describe all the ways in which they used it, but it was a weapon that almost never failed to complete its mission once it was put into use. It was not just a regular sword or a regular dagger. It was designed in a way that you twist it and pull it back out and there's no really surviving what happens after that. Of course, here it's used in a good way. The Word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. See, Jesus Christ, when he was upon the cross and he was dying and drawing his last breath, he uttered the words, it is finished. Those words were in response to the very first words it's recorded that he ever spoke, which is when he was 12 years old, he said, I must be about my father's business. We covered this last week. First thing he said, I must be about my father's business. Last thing he said, it is finished. What is finished? His father's business. So he died upon the cross, and then what? Was everybody saved? Did the world end? Are we now living in heaven? Are we standing in the new Jerusalem? Has the dispensation of the Gentiles ceased? Is the church over? Has any of that been done? So it wasn't really finished, was it? So what did he mean when he said it is finished? Well, he turned around and let us know a little bit later on that specifically the ministry of reconciliation is no longer his, but is given to his body, which is the church. Reconciliation means bringing a lost creation back to its creator, reconciling a lost soul to the master of souls. Reconciliation is given to us 
His work was done on the cross. In other words, he gave us the Bible, he gave us his word, and it works like this. When God speaks it, and he speaks it to you, and he speaks it to the church, that forms one edge of the blade. But it's a two-edged blade, and that word in the Greek is actually mouth, which means he's not just looking for it to come out of one mouth, but he's looking for it to come out of two mouths. First it came out of his mouth, and now he's requiring that it comes out of your mouth. Literally, the words of your mouth form the other edge of that sword, which is the word of God, which goes in and pierces and divides soul from spirit and discerns even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So what am I trying to say to you this morning? Us as the body of Christ, you who are called, are not called to explain. You are not called to be super intelligent, although a lot of you are, and that's a gift and that's great, and God bless you and use that to the best of its ability. But we do not have to stand up with our Bibles and feel like we are relegated to an educational model that the only way we're ever going to win anybody to Christ is if we become so knowledgeable and so well learned in this book that we are able to take their minds and turn them towards God on the basis of our own knowledge. That's never what God has called us to do. This is what God wants you to do. He wants you to be able to tell somebody that he was born of a virgin. He doesn't want that explained. That's just how it is. He wants you to tell somebody that he died for their sins. He doesn't need that to be explained. He just wants you to stand with him. Where two or three are gathered, he gave you his word and then he gave you the message of reconciliation. He just wants you to tell them that Jesus loves them. He doesn't want you to stand there and have a debate about it. When I rip to shreds the pillars of Mormonism to a Mormon person, they don't turn around all happy and joyful and decide they want to join my church because I just ripped theirs apart. That doesn't cause somebody to want to come into the the fold of Jesus Christ. He didn't ask me to explain Mormonism to them. He just wanted me to let them know that Jesus loves them. He wanted me to let them know that he died for their sins. He wanted me to let them know that he rose again on the third day. I can't explain that. There's no scientific method to explain resurrection. I don't have to explain it. He doesn't want you to explain it. He wants to remain hidden to a degree. He wants to remain concealed. He wants you to help somebody get started down that path. He wants us to stand firm on the word of God in the midst of a world that needs everything to be explained and just work after a manner of revelation. Just stand there and be a vessel, be a tool, and let God reveal himself through you. Let me, let me make it make a little bit more applicable sense to you. Don, can I use you as an example? Sure. Come on up. Come on up. Say Don has a, a chronic illness. Say he's dealing with something something life-ending, something earth-shattering, big deal, very, very sick. And he comes up to the front, and I preach a gospel, I preach a word of God that says, those that are sick among you, let them come up to the front, let the elders lay hands, let us anoint them with oil and pray for healing. I preach a gospel that says God is able to miraculously heal the sick. God is not asking for me to maintain my own reputation by explaining to Don that I'm going to pray for him very politely 
and that God can do all things and God can heal him. But if he doesn't, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love him. And God also gave us the doctors and God also gave us medicine and everything's going to be okay. And we're not trying to be weird and we're not trying to do anything crazy. Uh, and we're not crazy people. We're human beings just like you. We're just going to pray for you real quick, brother, that, that, uh, that, that God's healing will be upon you. And it starts, it starts getting almost a little weird because you're, you're, you're speaking out of two sides of your mouth. Now, did God give doctors wisdom? Absolutely. Is medicine all bad? No, it's not. Okay, I'm not, I'm not against any of those things. But what I'm trying to tell you is that when somebody, when God sends somebody into your life, when God opens a door for you to stand firm on the word of God and be a vessel of revelation, he's not asking you to take that revelation and then actually become a vessel of explanation. He doesn't need your explanation. He doesn't need your defense. He just needs you to know that he said he can heal people. It's not on me if Don doesn't get healed. It's not on Don if Don doesn't get healed. Maybe Don doesn't need to be healed. Maybe Don needs to see somebody walk up to him, lay hands on him and just say, in the name of Jesus Christ, and believe that God can cast out demons, cast out sickness, and we're believing by the glory of God for his healing. And that's it. Maybe that's all he needed to hear. Maybe in that he'll see in me a revelation that there are some people that are not that aren't messing around. And just like our worship leader said this morning. You can sit down. Ten thousand people. Standing up in a congregation, lifting their hands and singing praises to an invisible God. They're either all crazy or there's something real about it. That's revelation. He's not requiring you to have an explanation of why you do that. He's requiring you to be a vessel to help reveal him. In all of his majesty. Amen. I want to share with you a secret that some of you know, some of you don't. The first book of the Bible ever written was the book of Job. Chronologically, as far as chronological history, obviously it does not reach back as far as Genesis. Genesis has the oldest stories in the Bible. But Genesis was written by Moses. Before Moses was ever born, Job was born. And Job wrote his book. The reason why I want you to understand that is because in our educational model, we tend, now this is, this is very delicate, I'm trying to say this in a delicate way and I want you to understand what I'm saying. In our educational system, we tend to make our Bibles our gods. I want you to hear what I'm saying because I, I'm, not, I'm not speaking ill against the word of God at all, so let me finish my explanation. In a classroom setting, the textbook has all information. In a classroom setting, the textbook is God, if you will. Because not only is it never wrong, but it's all-encompassing. Everything you need for that class is in that textbook, and you've got to understand every bit of that textbook to make a good grade. And you don't need anything outside of that textbook. You just need to understand that textbook. So we bring that model then into the church and our Bibles, our books, become our God. In other words, people have to understand the Bible the way that we understand the Bible to have salvation the way that we have salvation. They cannot have a revelation of God 
outside of the way that we interpret this book. It's impossible. Which in a way makes the book God, but even in a bigger way, it makes the, the teacher of the book God. So I, I will become your God for you. You don't need to figure out what the Bible is saying to you. You need to figure out what I say about the Bible. And what I say about the Bible goes. And if you will share my interpretation of the word of God, you can be part of my flock. And if you will be part of my flock, we will all go to heaven together. But you have to sign this paper and maintain that your beliefs mirror my beliefs and that your words echo my words. And then we can all be a big, happy family. We can build this thing up together and we can all go to heaven. But don't ever try to, to, to find God outside of that and outside of our interpretation of that. Now, I know that's delicate because you say, Pastor, were you telling people to search outside of God's word for a revelation of God? That's where it gets real iffy, because in a manner, yes. Job had an amazing revelation of God, and there was no Bible yet. He was the first man to record his relationship with God, and Genesis wasn't written. And Revelation wasn't written. And Paul, who authored two-thirds of the New Testament, he wrote, he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse number 20, that the invisible things of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which God made, even his eternal purpose and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The psalmist wrote that the heavens declare God's glory. The point that I'm trying to get across to you is that if our revelation of God can only be found between the 66 books of Genesis to Revelation, then your relationship with God, in my opinion, which I believe the Bible echoes, is a bit lacking. Because all it can be based on then is knowledge. Words, memorization, and knowledge. Now, the word of God is unlike any other book ever, ever produced on the planet. But are you with me in understanding there are many people who have used the same Bible that you have for evil, that have used the same word of God in the wrong way? Have you turned it on A&E lately? Have you watched the Discovery Channel? Are there not scholars and highly educated people who open up the same book, use the same words and get it all wrong? Because all of their knowledge and understanding lies between Genesis to Revelation. Whereas my word of God tells me, my word of God tells me that to the shepherd, he is the head shepherd. To the man that works in the landscape arena, he is the lily of the valley, he is the rose of Sharon. To the baker, he is bread. To the thirsty, he is water. He is the light of the world. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb that was slain. He reveals himself in a multiplicity of ways. The word of God is chalked full of anthropomorphic understandings of who God is. What I mean by that is like when God says his hand is upon Jeremiah, does that mean that he's walking around with his hand on Jeremiah everywhere Jeremiah goes? No. When he says he destroyed them with the breath of his nostrils, does that mean that he stood above the earth and blew out fire out of his nostrils and destroyed people? No, he didn't actually do it that way. What he's doing is using things that you understand to explain things that you cannot understand, use things that you have seen to try to give you an idea of things that you cannot see. He is a revealer, not an explainer. He is a brother, not necessarily just a teacher. 
He wants you to yearn and he wants you to have a relationship with him based on a revelation of who he is, not an explanation of who he is. And he told his people that he's everywhere all the time. That means he cannot just be confined inside of the theoretical theologies that we produce out of his book. He is not confined by our dogmatic expressions of who he is. It's interesting when God does that, when he changes your sermon or your message at the last at the last minute. I'm just going to be 100 percent transparent with you guys. Um, I know we did that that 30 for 30 thing a while back if you were here. And uh, that was that was um, that was a little nerve wracking for those for those 15 weeks. Um, But I got used to that idea, or at least I thought, however, today was very nerve wracking. Um, to have that change at the last minute. I, I don't, I'm not sure I explained myself real well. I just want to tell you this. I, I, I had no intention of sharing uh, that word this morning. When I don't have some time for study and time to put things together, it's obviously, as it would be for most people, a little bit more difficult um, to get an idea of cro- across. But it also means, in my view, in almost 100% of the time that that's ever happened, that there's somebody, if not multiple somebodies, who really needed to hear something that was in that this morning. So don't let um, my lack of explanation or ability to, uh, to share that message, um, don't let that hinder your ability to walk away with what you need to walk away with. I don't know if I, ex- again, explained it really well, but I do know that we live in a, uh, we're living in a serious time. I mean, all, all times are serious, all lives are serious, but I think it's, it's, Prevailing wisdom says, well, he doesn't even have to be prevailing wisdom. Every day that you wake up, it's a little closer to his return. Amen. doesn't matter how long it is. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, tomorrow is a step closer. However, a lot of people have felt for a long time, and I line up with those people, and I believe as well that it's something that we're very likely to see in our lifetime. In fact, um, being a math and, and science guy, as some of you know, those of you who are newer may not know that, um, the best Bible math that I can work out, if we... If it went past 2035, wouldn't it, there's most of it wouldn't make sense to me. Doesn't mean that it has to. I could have something completely wrong. I just have to go back and find something that I missed before. But I've tried my best to find everything that I can find. And going past that, there'd be a lot of questions for me. The math wouldn't work out. So I'm thinking, you know, my view has always been, and a lot of people feel the same way that that we'll see it within our lifetime. Um. That being said, if that's true, then we are always on the cusp of some great revival because I know that I know in my spirit that God wants to do a major work on the earth before the beginning of the end, if you will, or before the days of his return. And I really feel deep within my spirit that part of that revival is going to be based on seeking out a revelation of who God is and sacrificing all of the explanations of who God is. Now, we are a church that endeavors to go as deep as we can go. I want to explain the Hebrew to you. I want to explain the Greek. I want to use the numbers. I want to use the science. I want to use the history. I want to use the culture. That's all inside the body of Christ. That's all inside the church. I want to do that because I think it builds your faith. I know that it builds my faith. We go to church every week, if not twice a week or three times a week. So I'd rather not take the same messages and repeat them to you 
in multiple different ways. I'd rather bring some new things. I'd rather study and go a little bit deeper. That doesn't mean that what you need to do is get out there in the world and take these explanations and make these explanations your gospel of how you're going to win people over to the Lord. Hopefully, if you can get somebody's attention enough to walk them into the church house, some of the things that we bring and some of the things that we preach will pique their interest. What I'm trying to say, if I just want to say it plainly, is that honest to God, the most important part of our church is the spirit-filled nature of our church. That's the most important part. That's where the revelation comes. That's what's outside of Genesis to Revelation. It's inside there too. But it's outside. It's the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so many churches and so many denominations just have the Word and thank God they have the Word. But He wants to do a work with people who will embrace His Spirit. And the Spirit of God is so important. And so I want to endeavor as your pastor... And I want to put this on your heart as Edgewater Church to walk with us, stand hand in hand with us as we endeavor to walk down that spirit filled path and allow the spirit of God to have more and more freedom in our services, in our lives. It's got to get past the point of our own reputation, past the point of worry. And we really have to be sold out to the idea that what God wants to do is reveal himself. Now, he never does that outside the bounds of self-control. And we always want to keep that in the front, the forefront of our mind. But we don't want to be so controlled that we control him right out of the room. You know, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not asking you to do anything specific. I'm not about to give you any rules or regulations. I just want you to take that home with you. Between now and next Sunday in your prayer life, make that part of your prayer life. Ask for God to reveal more of his spirit to you. Ask God to reveal more of his miracle working power. Remember what Paul said, that he wants to come to people with a demonstration of the power of the cross. What does that mean? Ask for revelation in your own life. Ask for revelation in your own life. Because he is a God who glories himself in concealment and lets us have the glory of revealing. 